This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, I'm Dan Coatesworth. Welcome to the latest edition of the Money and Markets podcast. This week, we'll be looking at how the market reacted to the latest lockdown easing delays and why oil could be headed to $100 a barrel. Danny Houston is with me to talk inflation. Hi, Dan. I'll be looking at the latest figures and we'll also be chatting about why wages could soon be going up and why companies are in the firing line over big bonuses. If you're excited about the Euros, stay tuned for some alarming news on the state of UK football's finances. And later on, I'll be chatting with Nicole Vitesse from Franklin Templeton about investing in foreign markets. There's some really interesting thoughts on Chinese groups Alibaba and Tencent. And we've also got Jenny Owen with us with the latest light-hearted look at the world of money. But first, let's talk markets and whether Boris Johnson's disappointing news rattled investors, Dan. Well, you know, the delay to lifting these restrictions is pretty much widely trailed by the media ahead of this announcement. So we did see some weakness in the shares of pub companies and restaurants in advance of the Prime Minister's announcement. So obviously these sectors will have to continue operating at slightly reduced capacity for just a little bit longer. Now, shares in airline companies are also slightly weak. I would have thought that's probably down to the, the government's cautious tone with suggesting that they're going to take a similar view with opening up of overseas travel. But but really, markets were in a positive mood the day after Boris Johnson's announcements. I, I think it's just down to investors. They like clarity. And confirmation of the delay just removes that uncertainty, even though it means another few weeks of sort of difficult trading for, for various companies. Yeah, we've got a 16-month high for the FTSE 100, although the 250 was a, a little more sluggish. And certainly I noticed that companies like Tui were down the next day, even though some of those like the restaurant groups, Whitbread, etc., they seem to make back an awful lot of the ground that they'd lost the previous day, as you say, because a lot of people were sort of, at least they understood exactly what was going on. Um, I think we might get some more wobbles when we get closer to that next date as a lot of businesses are saying, look, we just need certainty. Are we really going to get the keys to freedom in July? Because I mean, markets thrive on certainty, Dan. Yeah, they do, really. And, you know, we're only talking sort of four, four odd weeks here, aren't we? So, you know, investors are looking at earnings for the rest of the year and into next year. So um, I don't think it's sort of a, a massive disappointment to the types of companies on the stock market than you think. Yes, there'll be lots of small businesses potentially be really hurt by losing out on this, you know, another month's sort of full capacity trading. Um, but, you know, I guess for the airlines, you know, they, they need all the help they can get. But, um, you know, we all want to go on holiday. They'll get their their moment in the sun at some point. It's all, of course, now wrapped up with discussions about the furlough scheme as well, because it's slowly beginning to unravel and businesses are now having to pay a little bit more into the scheme in the same way we saw it tapering off last year. And that's why, you know, these travel companies are appealing to the government to extend the scheme again, because if they don't make their money over this summer period, then it becomes a really difficult balancing act. Do they keep staff on? Do they risk making them redundant and having to bring them back next year? And can they afford to keep paying staff if they haven't made a decent amount of cash over the summer? 
And whether or not they'll be able to do any kind of winter sun, we, we just haven't had any kind of confirmation yet. Um, yeah. It's been um, a, a busy week, Dan. Um, and I know that you're particularly looking at a, a couple of companies, Ashted and Boohoo. Yeah, so when we, if we, we start with construction equipment rental company Ashted, uh, it may not be a household name, but this is a this is a really big company and does most of its business in the US. It's doubled its operating profit to two hundred and sixty four million in the three months to the end of April, and it's actually what's happening is it's reaping the benefits of high levels of construction activity and more customers actually turning to rentals because they'd be they were selling their um, equipment to secure liquidity during the peak of the crisis last year. So they're having to borrow equipment now to get going again. And the other one that sort of struck my eye was the, the fashion retailer Boohoo had some figures out trading update. You know, the US and UK sales growth remains really strong, but some of the other geographic territories it operates in aren't doing as well. I think overall Boohoo's management didn't, feel confident enough to upgrade earnings forecasts for the year. So the shares slip back a bit. Investors are a bit disappointed. You know, Boohoo's got its reputation for always coming out with really strong numbers. And I think you know, expectations are so high now that if it doesn't smash those figures each time, there's a little bit of a grumble from the from the stock market. Now, what was notable that at the same time they put out this update, they also um, put out an update on their agenda for change because, of course, they've been embroiled in this scandal about the supply chain in terms of the manufacturing of its clothing. And they brought in Sir Brian Leveson and he gave um, an update on this agenda for change programme, which has been ongoing. And one of the commitments was that um, although they've already published its full UK manufacturing list, um, it has committed to publishing its global supplier list in September of this year. Uh, and it's uh, reiterated the fact that that will happen. It's also talking about the fact that you know, they've, they've launched a, a forensic auditing model, um, which will really be sector leading. And one thing that they have done is they have linked the bonus payments, some of the bonus payments of executives to the performance on this ESG sector. But that is something that doesn't seem to have brought all investors alongside because um, there's an AGM of Boohoo later this week and the Financial Times are reporting that there's an investor rebellion brewing with some people, some investors, intending to vote against the re-election of Carol Kane, of course, one of the co-founders and executive directors of the company. And investors argue that the supply chain problems that Boohoo have had, which have been serious, were allowed to develop under her watch, even though I think most people agree that what they have done in dealing with this issue has, has been pretty good. I mean, they've made some big strides. Now, Mahmoud Kamani, the co-founder and company's chair, was actually re-elected in 2019, so doesn't face a vote this year. But all of this investor unrest, it, it feels like because of COVID, because there have been so many questions asked about um, businesses who have perhaps had to take money from the government, either for, for furlough or in business support, or because staff have been asked to go that extra mile. A lot of investors are now looking at this period of time when we're seeing all the executive pay get agreed. They're looking at these pay deals 
and they're saying, hang on, I'm not sure about this. And with Carol Kane, this is obviously all caught up in supply chain and potentially we'll see investors um, making a mark and, and voting against her re-election, although it's, it's very unlikely to go through. We're also seeing the JD Sports Executive Chairman, Peter Cowgills, in, uh, in the firing line as well. And uh, some investors are suggesting that they may vote against his re-election. And this is all tied up with bonuses. And there are a number of executives who have come under the cosh because of the fact that they are getting big bonuses. And I think it was um, the uh, Bank of England's former governor, Mark Carney, who said about COVID, look, we might all be in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. Because although some workers, some um, people have been really badly affected by COVID. Maybe they've been on furlough at only at 80%. What we're seeing is still some huge bonuses. And Peter Cowgill's um, £4.3 million bonus has really riled investors, particularly because the business got £61 million through the furlough scheme and £38 million in business rates relief. But we also had an issue where David Potts, the Morrison's boss, um, his bonus was 1.7 million, despite a fall in profits, because it was calculated before COVID costs were stripped out. And shareholders were really unhappy. So we had 70% voting against the bonus. But crucially, more than 95% voted in favour of keeping him in position. And I think that's where there's a bit of a disconnect, Dan, between shareholders voting against these pay deals, but then voting to keep the people in position because that's where the power lies, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Peter Cowgill from JD Sports. The, the JD yeah. Sports, yeah. I was say, you know, he's he's seen to be sort of you know such a strong character and key to their success over the years. Um, I think shareholders are looking at it and saying like, you know, that if it's a good person at the top. Um, you know, fair enough, they should be paid well, um, you know, if they're delivering the results. But, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't suddenly say, you, you know, you can't pay them massive bonuses, but you, you mustn't leave because we need you to run the, the business. I just think they need to have, have a fairer structure for these bonuses, not be so generous with them. Um, and this year, above all, of course, because we have seen a huge amount of hardship. We have seen you know, in some cases, businesses really fight back against difficult circumstances. But I think when you have a lot of taxpayers' money going in to support these businesses, then it does leave a, a bit of a nasty taste in the mouth. Yeah, I mean, you know, these businesses should be, if they can afford to pay those massive bonuses, they should be paying back anything that they've had in support schemes from the government. And I think most companies have, have been doing this, and the ones that haven't are being sort of dragged over the coals by the, the media anyway. So, um, yeah, yeah. I think this is a trend that's going to get uh, you know, gain some traction this year. You know, people saying enough's enough. You just can't be throwing money left, right, centre for these people. That um, yes, they need to be rewarded for you know if, they, if they're bringing success to people, but it's just a little bit too much. When we're talking about prices, a hundred dollars a barrel for oil. That is a price which I've heard. Uh, talked about this week. Will we get there? Are we, are we anywhere close to assuming that that might happen in the next year? Well, we're at about seventy three dollars a barrel at the moment. Um, 
if you think that it wasn't that long ago when oil was, um, you know, looking around the sort of the twenty dollar level. So it's on on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. I was talking about the potential for oil to shoot up again in price as the market yeah. was going to be worrying about underinvestment in new supplies. So yes, look, we know the world is shifting to renewable energy and oil companies are trying to transform themselves. However, there's still a need for some oil. And I think that we get to the stage where uh, is there going to be a, a pressure on supplies before the world is sort of fully transformed to sort of a, a greener world? So we've had some executives from various commodity traders, including Glencore and Trafigura, saying that $100 for oil, for, for crude oil, is a real possibility. So, um, you know, they're making the point as well that the world's not quite ready to make this full leap to clean energy and complete electrification. And Glencore saying we're only one or two events away from a material spike in oil prices. So if you think at the moment, all the topic everyone's talking about is inflation. Rising oil prices are a key driver for inflation at the moment. So it's really important that anyone who's interested in you know, looking after their money and having invested in the markets needs to be watching this oil price. Um, you know, Danny, we just had the latest figures, haven't we, from the UK on inflation, and and you know, it does show that the direction of travel is up, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, oil prices are making a massive impact on inflation figures, and uh, UK inflation this morning did give people a bit of a jolt because it was up higher than they had expected it to be. In fact, it was at 2.1%, which of course is a significant figure because the Bank of England would like to keep inflation uh, 2% under just a little bit if possible. So, uh, um, And a huge part of this was because of the cost of a litre of petrol. Of course, when we were stuck at home last year, as you were saying, the oil price went down and the cost of a litre of petrol £1.6. In the month of May, as people started to head back out, obviously to go to work, maybe to go to the pub or something like that, we saw the price rise to £1.27. Now, when we're comparing the the rise, of course, we're comparing, comparing it to that low base, which is why a lot of people are saying that this is a very much a transitory issue and we shouldn't be too worried about it and the Bank of England shouldn't be doing anything knee-jerk like you know, slowing down the, the pace of help that it's giving the economy or raising interest rates. And something else that plays into that, you were talking about Boohoo, well, we've seen a rise in prices in clothing and footwear because, you know, if you're going out, you're going to see people again. It's not just, you know, head and shoulders. So you have to have something decent on the bottom half. You're not just doing Zoom calls anymore. Then you're going to need a new outfit and it seems a lot of people are spending money for a new soundtrack as well. So a lot of money has been spent on downloads. But there is also a big concern about rising commodity prices, not just oil, but other things. You've also got uh, the rising cost of shipping. You've got the shortage of semiconductors. We've spoken about that on the podcast before. All of these things are causing a spike in producer prices. And that is something that we've also seen in the US. And 5% was the figure in the US. I mean, Dan, I know that you were quite surprised when we saw that figure. I know I was surprised. I mean, that's a big figure in the US. 
Yeah, I mean, and and will it get even worse as as the year goes on? It's be quite interesting to see. You know, are we going to have a a summer where people just go crazy spending, and that'll just push it up further? So I think you know, just just keep <laughs> keeping a watch on those figures on a monthly basis. And we do need to keep a watch on the figures. And there were some people saying that perhaps the fact that we've had a delay to this reopening might give a bit of a breather to uh, rising prices. But what we have seen in some cases is because demand is outstripping supply. So, for example, you know, if you want to go to the pub, there are only 10 tables that you can book and you really want to go. You're going to play more for those tables. And if a pub can't open up its full 30 tables because of social distancing, then, you know, that demand is going to be continuing to outstrip the supply, which is going to perhaps hoik prices up, even though maybe we can't spend money in as many places that we wanted to. But we've obviously got a meeting of the Federal Reserve, US markets certainly keeping a really close eye on that. And that there feels to be a bit of a shift at the moment and a lot of questions now being asked about whether the mood music will at least start to change, even if we don't see a change in policy quite yet. And while we're talking about inflation, wage inflation is another issue people should be watching. Yeah, I mean, there's there's um, a lot of sort of leisure companies are sort of see their share prices shoot up, the market's pricing in big earnings growth. But you do have to wonder whether profit's going to come, come under sort of a bit of a pressure because they're, they're definitely having to uh, contend with higher labour costs because they're struggling to find people. So if you're going to attract the people to do these jobs, they might just have to put their hands in the pocket and, and, and give them a bit more cash. You know, there's the sign of a staffing crisis in the hospitality industry and care, construction sector, and food processing. So, you know, a lot of these jobs are minimum wage, and we've seen with Brexit, more than 1.3 million overseas nationals have left the UK in the last year. So that reduces the natural pool of workers for these types of roles. Hospitality sector has been really badly hit by COVID. So workers have just gone to different sectors to find employment. And you know, this isn't just a UK problem. I did see that there was a branch of McDonald's in Florida is offering $50 just to attend a job interview, saying it's the worst market for hiring in decades. You know, that's quite a sweetener, isn't it, to, to you know, <laughs> go, go to McDonald's? But you know. I doubt they're paying uh, $50 an hour, though, once no. you actually get the job. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the thing, isn't it? But it, it is a worry because as the economy, both in the United States and the UK, unravels and picks up, a lot of these businesses, particularly hospitality, they're having to find the restart costs. So they're having to bring in, you know, food from scratch and, and beer again. They don't have it left over from the weekend, you know, that they're having to start again. So there's a big cost. And as you say, if they've let staff go, trying to bring people back in, that could make a real dent in their plans to, to try and, you know, pick things back up again. Um, I suppose for a lot of people, when they're talking about a job, I I know certainly my nephews, their dream job would be to be a footballer. And um, now, of course, is, is as good a time as any to talk about football because it, it is an industry renowned for paying players the big bucks. But money's been getting tight recently. Yeah, English Premier League's top clubs posted their biggest collective loss in history. So pre-tax losses soared to just around £1 billion in the 2019-20 season. 
um, according to some studies by Deloitte. So that's five times higher um, losses than the previous campaign. So, yeah, it's it's a difficult one. You know, they're, they're posting their first ever collective fall in revenues down 13% to 4.5 billion pounds compared with the previous season. And, you know, there was 20 clubs in the Premier League had to defer or return revenue from broadcasters and sponsors after the season was postponed for three months. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you look at it on an individual club basis, Manchester City recorded a loss of £125 million, second only to Everton, which made a loss of nearly £140 million. So, you know, whilst these club finances are expected to start to recover this season, it could take until the end of next season for the figures to return to pre-pandemic levels. And, you know, I was saying earlier about the wage stuff wasn't just a problem in the UK. It's the same thing here with football. It's not just a problem on, you know, domestically, clubs across Europe have suffered big hit to earnings. So FC Barcelona reported a pre-tax loss of 128 million euros. Real Madrid pre-tax profit shrunk from 53 to just about 2 million euros. You know, it is no wonder that, you know, there's a few of these football clubs on the stock market and their share prices are literally going nowhere. Um, I just think that you've got Juventus has barely recovered any of its lost territory from when the global stock market crash happened last year. You know, Manchester United shares have literally gone nowhere in the last 12 months. You know, both of these clubs were part of the European Super League and you know, perhaps they've suffered from the fallout as that sort of tournament quickly collapsed. Yeah, you talk about these big clubs, but of course, you know, the conversation's been going on for years about the uh, finances of of certainly medium-sized clubs. You know, when you're small and at the bottom, you tend to cut your cloth. But when you're medium-sized and you're desperately chasing that dream of getting into top-flight football where the money can be made, then sometimes you maybe spend more than you can afford. And there, there are a lot of questions about the way that money is shared out. But one thing there is no question about is the appeal of football. Have you managed to catch any of what is really throwing me by calling it Euro 2020 but have you caught any of the games <laughs> yeah yeah I've watched the odd bits and here and there my daughter's a massive football fan so um sort of watch a bit with her but um but no not I've, I've yeah you had to actually sit down and watch a whole game with it how about how about you uh, we did watch the England game. It felt that it was necessary viewing and it was a, a lovely Sunday. So, you know, barbecue and the England game, it doesn't get much better. Um, but uh, I will, I watch them sporadically. I'm not a massive fan. My nephews are huge fans. My daughters, I'm sad to say, I've not really been able to get them into football so much. They're like playing it, but not particularly watching it but uh, I don't know we'll, we'll get there I'm sure yeah. um, it is time to bring on this week's special guest Dan so we've had quite a few podcast listeners ask if we could discuss investing in overseas territories now given that a lot of people already know about US markets I thought today it'd be useful if we focused on emerging markets where economic growth rates can often be faster than developed markets. So I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast, Nicole Vitesse, who's an institutional portfolio manager in Franklin Templeton's Emerging Markets Equity Team. So Nicole, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. So let's start off with just, I think, some basics around what emerging markets are. So there's sort of three main categories of economies, which would be frontier, emerging, and developed. What sort of point 
does a country move to a different category? That's a great opening question. And it's actually, um, disappointingly, uh, quite difficult to have a very clear definition of exactly <laughs> what defines a uh, frontier, emerging markets and developed um, um, country. Um, so there are there isn't really a universal definition. Um, and you might be surprised and your listeners might be surprised to hear that actually it doesn't really depend on the size of the economy or even the share of global growth. Else, of course, China wouldn't be classified as an emerging market. Um, it's more to do with elements such as the openness of the country's markets. Um, so the ability and ease with which you can buy and sell shares. So recently you've had, um, for example, Kuwait added to the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, which is generally the benchmark or index that um, many emerging market investors use as a default. Um, and the upgrade follows Kuwait's implementation of regulatory and operational enhancements in the Kuwaiti equity market, such as introducing omnibus accounts. That, and that actually means that it allows foreign investors to trade while remaining anonymous, um, offering the same privileges that local investors now have. And likewise, there's been concern and, and debate and discussions um, last year, for example, that the MSCI might actually downgrade Turkey to frontier status, so the next category down in terms of its openness to investors, after it implemented a series of measures um, that made it harder for foreign investors to buy and sell shares. Okay, so some of our listeners might be familiar with Templeton's Emerging Markets Investment Trust, whose aim is to find the best opportunities across emerging markets. Now, that's obviously quite a large space. How many companies are there across this emerging markets universe? And how do you pick the ones to invest in? Yes, so it is, um, you know, a very large universe. And the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, which I just referenced earlier, has over um, 1,400 stocks in the index. But again, the default benchmark, uh, which most people use for emerging markets investing, um, we don't think really does um, provide the full representation of the investment opportunity set. So there are many more companies beyond that, that we uh, research um, and we potentially invest in. Um, so beyond the index, for example, we might invest in frontier markets, um, but also further down the market cap scale, into smaller companies that won't be represented in that index. And we're able to do this because we have this large team of over 80 investment professionals and they're actually located in the, the emerging markets themselves. So if you like, we have boots on the ground offering a deep and broad coverage of the emerging market companies, but also that long-standing local presence that we have, so over 30 years of investing in emerging markets, translates into the benefits of better access and stronger trust with the companies that we invest in. Yeah, could, could you give me a couple of examples of um, companies that you, you currently invested in then? Sure. Um, so just to give you an, an illustration of how we think about the investment opportunities. Um, so if you think about innovation, for example, that's really the cornerstone of emerging markets today. Um, the fact that emerging market companies are innovating faster and to a more successful extent than their developed market peers. And you can see how emerging markets are reinventing or transforming themselves, as well as the global importance of emerging markets when it comes to digitalization. So, for example, 
we're seeing agile companies transforming their business models to adapt to a changing world. So for example, in our portfolio, if you take um, electric vehicle battery manufacturers, so traditionally they would be viewed as old economy com um, companies, and they're now at the real forefront of innovations. Um, so electric vehicle sales registered a 40% year-on-year increase in 2019, but they only accounted for 1% of global car stock. But fueling that shift to electric power is innovation in battery technology, as cheaper, more efficient batteries enables the electric vehicle mass market to take off. And global production of batteries for um, electric vehicles is concentrated in Asia, with Chinese, Japanese, and South Korean firms dominating the sector. So for example, companies such as LG Core, uh, which you'll find in our Temit fund, includes um, amongst its subsidiaries, Korea's largest EV um, battery manufacturer. And as I sort of talked about earlier on in terms of the old economy industrials, um, it used to be considered to be uh, an old chemical, um, an old industry chemical company, but it now has 25% market share of what is the highest value component of electric vehicles, the battery. And its clients are um, clients such as Tesla, um, General Motors, uh, Volkswagen, Ford, and Daimler, and various other automakers as well. Um, and in terms of innovation, LG Core is in fact the sole battery manufacturer that provides batteries for both hybrid cars and um, battery electric vehicles. And it's strengthened its battery stability from the cell unit by improving the battery durability and heat resistance through um, a technology um, that is nano ceramic coating. So you can see LG Core has a number of advantages that offers the potential for um, an investment in emerging markets to tap into that longer term structural theme around EV production. I think just a third of the, the Templeton Emerging Markets Investment Trust's portfolio is in China. And obviously that includes names like Alibaba and, and actually Tencent as well. So the, you know, these are fast growth companies, but equally they're big targets for regulators worried about their dominant market positions. Now, I, I noted that Alibaba recently had a $2.8 billion fine for abusing its market position. And if you go back to 2017, 2018, Tencent clashed with the authorities a couple of times over its games. So I'm just wondering why you might be happy to, to keep owning some of these stocks, despite the regulators sort of flexing their muscles. Yeah, I think it's important, um, particularly in the last couple of years, you know, there's been lots of, um, you know, issues around uh, the Chinese uh, regulatory um, um, aspects, uh, the trade disputes, for example, between China and the US. And the most important thing is really to keep everything into uh, firm perspective. And this is really where our local um, insights really come to the fore. So if you take, for example, Alibaba, um, although um, the fine of 2.8 billion US dollars is the biggest ever in China's Chinese history, the size is actually comparable to recent regulatory actions against US internet giants. Uh, so Facebook got a $5 billion um, dollar fine um, in the US in 2019. Um, Google um, was fined 2.7 billion US dollars and 5 billion US dollars um, by the EU in 2017 and 2019. So that's the first point I would make is to sort of put it in the context of what's happening globally. So it's not just an emerging market um, phenomena. Um, and 
then, you know, looking at the company itself and um, feeding back the information that our analyst is providing. So our analyst on, on this particular stock has many years of experience covering um, internet stocks, um, is actually based out in, in Asia. Uh, so very good understanding of, of the history and the backdrop. Um, so again, you know, taking that fine and comparing it to the cash that actually, or the net cash that Alibaba has on its on its uh, balance sheet, it's around 50 billion. Um, so it makes sort of a small dent um, in terms of, you know, a very, very tiny dent, I mean, um, in terms of the big picture for Alibaba itself. And, and as you mentioned, you know, historically, we've seen these this sort of government action in the past. You mentioned Tencent in 2018. Um, Alibaba, again, was heard in, back in 2015. Um, by um, some product quality ac accusations. Um, Baidu as well in 2012 um, was hurt by um, some concerns around fraud medical service ads. Um, so, you know, all of these companies bounce back. Um, and I think, like I said, it's a good example of having that uh, local insight really um, in order to make us, um, to help us make um, informed decisions. Um, and so our analysts would say of the internet sector, you know, what's important is, and what's clearly been de demonstrated historically, um, is that businesses that offer the better user experience and efficiency prevail in the end. And that's exactly the case for Alibaba. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's just talk about COVID. Obviously, um, you know, companies in your portfolio must have been affected, but you know, given that Asia was the first to recover from the pandemic. Is everything sort of back to normal now? And, um, you know, you, you, your, your companies in your portfolio sort of moving on and back to sort of their, their, their sort of growth plans? Mm -hmm. So um, again, um, you know, within emerging markets like elsewhere, um, the experience has been quite differentiated and at different paces. So um, of course, at the moment, we're hearing uh, more recently about um, uh, the issues in India um, around COVID, um, whereas elsewhere, for example, in China, it does feel like it's more like back to normal. Um, but if you um, take um, a sort of more um, top down view in terms of where emerging markets are positioned versus developed markets, um, I think what's clear during COVID is that um, emerging markets have fared much better in terms of their resilience during the crisis, um, paired with their ability to capitalize on some of those secular shifts that we're seeing to the new economy. And we think that will drive continued strength in the near term. Um, if you take emerging Asia, it does actually have the highest expected 2021 uh, GDP growth, um, according to emerging market forecasts of around 8.6% in 2021 versus, for example, 4.4% in Europe and around 6% in the US. And in fact, Asia x Japan growth is expected to accelerate um, to uh, levels that it experienced pre-COVID. And if you keep in mind that Asia actually comprises 80% of emerging markets, then that, of course, bodes well for emerging markets overall. Yeah, so I think just finally, a lot of people who, who might want to put money to emerging markets um, should perhaps understand you, you need to be a bit patient with it and because they are often considered to be higher risk investments. I, I know some people will sort of point to wild swings in share prices and 
unpredictable currencies and politics. I mean, do you think that's a sort of a fair description of the space? I think that many investors have maybe underestimated the transformation that emerging markets has undergone in the last few decades. And I think particularly in terms of its increased resilience. So maybe, you know, if you look back to the early 1990s, um, and if you think about the Mexican peso crisis, um, emerging markets today are in a very different place to how they were structurally um, when you had these crises such as the RAND collapse in 96, the Asian financial crisis in 97. You know, back then, um, many emerging markets had too much um, US dollar debt, excess fiscal spending, um, and fixed exchange rate systems. And if you um, fast forward to today, you, you actually find that there's quite a stark transformation that's taken place. Um, foreign currency reserves have improved, fixed exchange rates have gone, um, and emerging markets have diversified their US dollar debt. And I think um, the experience that we've had during COVID, but even during the global financial crisis, um, is testament to how very different and much more resilient emerging markets are today versus the past. So, um, for example, in the global financial crisis, um, no emerging market bank actually collapsed. So, Nicole, thank you ever so much for, for coming on to the podcast. That's really good. Thanks. Thank you. Well, before we wrap up, there is time and there's always time for a quirky story from Jenny, who's been out on the farm. Have you really been out on the farm, Jenny? Oh, I wish. Wouldn't that be lovely? <laughs> but this is about linking, and, and I can't believe that I'm about to say this. This is linking cow poo and cryptocurrencies. How? Mm. Oh, yeah. Well, so when I saw this story, I immediately thought the listeners of Money and Markets need to know about it. It may not be as dramatic as the classic play De Bussurge de Altendam, but it does involve manure. So not far from the Snowdonia National Park, a cattle farm has a large domed tank where another kind of farming happens. The Hughes family, who farmed the land for many years, have started a cryptocurrency farm using huge computers powered by renewable energy to mine Ethereum. The renewable energy? Cow muck. A massive six-cylinder engine uses the decomposing cow manure, well, specifically the methane released from it, and turns it into electricity, which then powers the mining computers. Instead of the harmful methane entering the atmosphere and acting as a greenhouse gas, two-thirds of the energy are used to run the cattle farm, and the other third is used in the cryptocurrency farm. The remaining waste is then used as fertiliser. There have been plenty of studies and reports about the environmental impact of mining cryptocurrency. Um, my favourite analogy has been that the energy used to fuel Bitcoin mining for one year is the same as powering all kettles in Britain to boil water for 33 years, which is about right in my house. Um, the Hughes have said it costs around £18,000 to set up their Ethereum mining system. But who said saving the planet was cheap? Now, I'm very impressed, Jen, with your German accent. And I think that we need to have you give us the name of that play just one more time. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's Der Besuchen der Altendam. Hey. <laughs> that one's for Russ Mould. <laughs> um, Jen, you, you grew up, you did grow up on a farm, didn't you? Yeah, I grew up on a, um, a sheep and a chicken farm. 
So um, I do know a lot about this subject, but um, we only had about eight cows at one point, but they were a bit too much to handle. They like to destroy the fencing, so we didn't go down that route for too long. Oh, see, I grew up on a duck farm, so uh, yeah. <laughs> Crikey. This smelly. Is the revelations. <laughs> 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 well, that's it from us this week. Don't miss next week's show. Danny's going to be chatting to the chief executive of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership about Build Back Better. So catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes. And the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.